Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Indeed, today is the day. Oh, it's Thursday. Is it Thursday? No. What day is it? Tuesday. (laughs) It's Tuesday, August the 27th. We had a 16-year-old birthday party last night at my house, and so um, I might be a little more tired than I normally am. Um, So thank you all for uh, bearing with me this morning. First up this morning, I've got Nicole Phillips. She talks with us each and every week about kindness, like kindness, what's going on in the world related to being kind. So you can find her at NicoleJPhillips.com, but you can also find her right here. Good morning. Good morning, Carmen. I love, let's just move on to Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) Hump day. Yeah. Right. Part of hump day is that you have to climb this side of the hill. Right. But we're not even the hump day, honey. We're still I know, Tuesday. I know. I'm so crazy. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Tuesday. Good morning. Good morning. Am I doing the kindness story today or are you? Because I well, have one. I have one that I Oh, good. You do yours. Okay, no, you okay, do yours. Okay. Go. Okay. Well, this one came from uh, the Inspire More website. I, I stole it. I'll be honest. But it was too cute to let it go. So there is a, a young woman and she is a full-time babysitter basically for two young boys. Uh, well, the two young boys asked her one day, they said, where do you work? And um, and it occurred to her that she thought that the boys came and or that she that the boys thought that she just came and hung out with them because she really liked them and that they were friends and and in that moment she had a big decision to make so now she said the boys think that she works at Chili's <laughs> she couldn't she couldn't fathom telling them that their parents actually pay her to hang out with them um and i just thought how sweet is that and you know like is it okay to lie to the ones we love well in this situation maybe <laughs> Well, I love that you hang out with us and um, and you do it for no compensation. Well, hey, I love to be able to talk about kindness. And if I can shout it from the mountaintops or from my faith radio, I think it's it's it is a benefit to me and and hopefully others. I love it. Right. See, I love that. See, that's a good spirit. So I was talking about well, I wasn't really I, I didn't get to talk about it, but there's this whole like barter movement going on in the world. And so yeah. I've been thinking that like as Christians, like the currency that we really have is love and grace and mercy. And like we are the ones that are equipped with this kind of currency. And what would it look like to sort of begin bartering with the world, with the currency of Christ? Mm, I love it. And you know what? In God's economy, we're never going to run out of that. Oh, I love that, right? Yeah. God's economy. Ooh, we should talk about God's economy more often. All right, Nicole, thank you so much. You guys can find her at NicoleJPhillips.com. We'll be right back. All right, so the bartering article that I was referring to is out of Malaysia. Malaysia actually hopes to be able to 
uh, to barter for military goods with palm oil. And so it gets into a conversation about the value of things and the relative value of things and what has value. So uh, we had a little 16th birthday party last night for Eliana and um, we played a game. So, you know, most of the people in our family are now uh, pretty mature. So um, although my grandkids are now involved as well. And so that's always now we got this like crazy multi-generational thing going on when there's a family birthday party. So uh, you got to come up with things that uh, that don't require reading because obviously the tiny little people can't read. But you also have to come up with something that the adults will be engaged in and can be conversational. So uh, we played this little game where uh, you put you put a ton of stuff. I mean, it just it can it can really range from completely useless and uh, uh, worthless, seemingly worthless, to quite valuable, right? And you put them all in a bag and you. Let everyone, without looking, um, you get, they get five. They get like five seconds or something to pick something out of the bag, and it could be everything from a plastic fork to a diamond ring. Like, right? <laughs> so, you uh, you then have to decide: is this something of value to me, or does someone else have something of higher value that I would like to exchange for this? And so you let them do that, and then you let them articulate like why they were working so hard to make the trade to get the thing that they wanted. And then you talk about the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the trade that God was willing to make um, for each and every one of us, seeing in us um, people of such great value that he was willing to sacrifice himself, his own son, on our behalf. Um, is that a trade you and I would be willing to make for someone else? It was, a, it was the trade that God was willing to make for us um, who may feel sometimes worthless and who are actually, in God's eyes, totally priceless. So there you go. There's a little uh, something you can do. With your family, it works with kids of all ages because, trust me, everybody thinks there's something of value in that grab bag. Okay, uh, with me now is Justin Gibney. He joins me from the AND campaign. Welcome back, my friend. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm well. I'm well. So um, I want to. I have so many things that I want to talk with you about today. Um, first of all, let me just. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to this question, which is always like dangerous, right? So there was this um, uh, event in Atlanta. Where um, I'm gonna, I'm sure the Black Church Forum. Is there any chance that you went or have heard anything about it? Yeah, I heard. I heard quite a bit about it. I was actually out of town at the at the time, but I heard uh, some really good things about that event. Where uh, some um, a, a part of the African American kind of church uh, had a conversation with some of the Democrat primary candidates, and so I heard it went pretty well. Yeah, and I was. Um, I mean, as I was reading. You know, some of the coverage uh, on the Religion News Service website, I was, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, wow, these these people seem pretty, several of them very, very comfortable in the language of the faith. And uh, and so anyway, I just thought uh, I would I would tee us up maybe for a future conversation about those candidates and, you know, the use of prayer and politics and, you know, people taken to the pulpit, because it does seem to me, Justin, as if uh, there's more freedom on the left for candidates to sort of be well-received by the culture when they go uh, and speak in churches than when we see the same thing happen on the right. So anyway, we, we don't have to talk about that today, but I, that is like a conversation I'd like to tee up for us um, in the future. Um, okay, so we have been looking a little bit at this New York Times 1619 project 400 years after American slavery um, I just it's even hard for me to just say that and not pause and be sick to my stomach and horrified 
that like this is who we are. This is our history and our heritage. So walk around with us in um, in the conversation today related to the 1619 Project of the New York Times or just this sort of much more public conversation that America seems to be having today about her own heritage. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think one of the, I think the I guess starting with the, the issue and why why this is important is because I think a lot of people have a hard time drawing the connection between slavery to some of the things that are going on today. And so the New York Times and and uh, this uh, 1619 project I think was important as they stated to draw a line when it comes to to the consequences of slavery and some of the things we see today. So you had folks like Brian Stevenson who is an attorney uh, that runs the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, kind of drawing out the connection between uh, prisons and our criminal justice system, and you know, kind of what went on in slavery. I think um, not. You know, I think some of the articles are better written than the others, so I, I don't really endorse all of the articles. But I think, especially Stevenson and some others, did a very good job of articulately helping people understand those connections and how what happened back then still affects us today. And so it is good to see that there's a broader conversation. You know, you know, when I first started uh, talking about and going and talking about race and criminal justice and all these things and just the history of, uh, of racial injustice, I assumed that people already knew. And that was a, a very poor assumption because people don't necessarily know. And so I think in as much as this uh, project help, helps people understand that connection and the history, I think it's a good thing. I have started assuming, um, Justin, that people know nothing. I mean, I, I really, I, I have begun assuming that they know nothing about the history of slavery in America in terms of accurate information. Um, and right. so I have, you know, I have just started like as starting by asking, well, how do you think it started? When do you think it started? What do you think that it involved? How many people do you think we're talking about? Was it just confined to the southern um, you know, to the southern colonies, like people have all mm. kinds of imaginations related to this. And so information and accurate information is really important. Do you have a, kind of a go to source where you would direct people for accurate information? I mean, maybe there is a book you like or a particular uh, blog or author. Is there somebody that you could point us to or some resource where you would say, if you really want an accurate understanding of the history of America related to slavery, here's a place to look. Yeah, sure. I mean, I often talk about the uh, Equal Justice Initiative. It might even be worth you taking. A, they opened up a um, a museum that's about slavery. I think it's in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that that may be a place for you to go to, to, you know, Brian Stevenson himself. So just to give you a background on the Equal Justice Initiative, one of the things they do is they actually take the time to kind of research some of these cases and some of the folks who have been in prison and actually appeal some of these cases that don't seem to be very just. Uh, and so I know he has a book. I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head. I, I can probably get That's it okay. by the end of the segment. Uh, but I think Brian Stevenson is a good is a good resource for that because it is very important to understand the history, the connections between what's going on and what happened in slavery. But that still doesn't mean that you should believe everything you hear. Right. So there's some people that can take that a little too far. I think uh, in general, folks like Brian Stevenson, I think you, you can read some of the some of the old writers. I mean, even go back to someone like uh, Frederick Douglass and, and you mm-hmm. know read some of Frederick Douglass's speeches, read his autobiography and what he's talking about. It doesn't have to be all things that you're seeing today. But but those are there's some really good resources in that regard. But I think the Equal Justice Initiative and some things you can find on their site at their museum is a pretty good place to start. 
All right, here's a couple of books by Brian Stevenson for my uh, for for my book bibliophiles out there. Just Mercy uh, yes. is a book that he has written, and then also A Perilous Path: Talking Race, Inequality, and the Law. Justin Gibney and I are going to be right back. Continuing my conversation with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign, also the crux and the call. Um, Justin, let's talk about African-American millennials. Um, We're talking about a pretty significant audience for the 2020 uh, Democrats. Uh, I'm wondering sort of what your sense is as I'm I'm right. You're a millennial, right? Yeah, I'm I'm at the cusp, but yeah, I'm right there. Okay, so um, just kind of take us into the conversation that might be happening among African-American millennials as they're looking toward the 2020 election. Yeah, so there's a lot of different conversations. I think one thing to keep in mind about millennials, African-American millennials, is they're certainly not a monolith, right? So there there are those who are more uh, working class. Uh, some of my friends who are, who are kind of more working class, I hear them talking a lot more about Bernie and, and conversations like that. Some of my folks who are more kind of professional class folks uh, are, are looking at either Biden or uh, Harris. And so they're, they're concerned, you know, they may be having conversations about the environment, things of that nature. And then you have a lot of, you know, a lot of folks who are supporting the AND campaign are, are African-American millennials who are concerned about the issues going on in both parties. And so they see a Democratic Party that when it comes to human dignity of the unborn, has some issues there. They see a Republican Party that they worry about, you know, immigration. And so it would be nice to, to have a candidate that spoke that spoke to both. But you're going to get a variety of of, um, of of opinions, although I think the effort to go out and to speak to that group is very important. And, and I think it'll be worthwhile. So one of the terms that um, that we hear that I think that people need to understand um, is pandering. And when we when we're trying to evaluate, I mean, I just think that this is a conversation that we have to have as Christians as well, because I have been in rooms where politicians have very clearly pandered to an evangelical audience. And I have wanted to stand up and raise my hand and be like, "Okay, that is not who you are. That is not what your policy is like. This does not surprise you because you know me. And I think that right people should have to tell the truth. But talk about pandering when it comes to um, conversations related to race. Yeah, it's tough uh, because a lot of politics in general has become pandering, right? Hasn't necessarily been about truthful conversations. It's been about what can I say to get you on my side? And pandering can be very dangerous. And I think some of the candidates in this primary have run into issues because they were pandering. Right. Uh, Assuming and even not just the white candidates, I think even uh, some of the black candidates have pandered to their kind of to their own uh, race. Um, You know, I think people I think at the end of the day, people are looking for leadership. I think people aren't necessarily looking for you to say that you care about something that you, you you know, you've shown no interest in beforehand or to say you listen to a certain type of music that you don't seem to have the sensibilities, you know, to uh, to appreciate I don't think people are asking you to be them or to say you like everything that they like. I think they want you to speak to the issues that are uh, impacting their community. Uh, And so what we've seen in this primary, and I've seen we've seen it in other uh, primaries on the Republican side, too, is people, you know, especially with social media, kind of having their ear to the ground and saying, oh, it looks like this particular group cares about such and such. 
Let me come up with a policy, whether it be thoughtful, all, you know, all the way thought out or not, or just half cocked. Let me come up with a policy that speaks to, to this particular issue just to get them on my side. And, and I think people see through that. Uh, and, and some of the candidates that are struggling right now have gone out of their way to pander, but haven't come up with real solutions that just look authentic. Okay, so that last word, authentic, um, right, that's that's always what I'm looking for. Um, when you point to leadership and when you say people are looking for leadership, um, how how do you define that and how do you know it when you see it? I think it starts, I think leadership starts with casting a vision, uh, right? So it's it's casting a vision to say, here's where we are. And here's where I think we can go if we do this, this and this. It's having it's having an understanding of the people. It's being able to communicate with the people and understand what they're going through and really communicate through your communication. Let them know that you feel them and understand them. And I know a lot of people don't like uh, um, uh, Bill Clinton, but I think in general, in his communication style, he was able to do this. Now, he had all kind of other issues. so I'm not defending that. But I think. He was one of the best politicians or kind of leaders in how he spoke because people felt like he understood where they were coming from and that he got them. Uh, I think throughout history, there's been others. I think uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, a lot of uh, FDR, a lot of other folks who were able to communicate that they understood you and were casting a vision for how they could help you. Um, And so that's that's a major part. I think another part of being a leader is just having the confidence and authority and giving people a, f- a feeling of stability. Um, and, and I've talked about that quite a bit to say, I'm coming with a plan. There is a way out of this and kind of s- calming everything down and, and kind of stabilizing things. When you can, when you can articulate yourself in that way, it's very helpful and people see that as leadership, but it starts with connecting with the people uh, and, and not pretending that you are them, but to pretend, but under, but actually showing them that you care. Okay, so that's uh, that right there, finger on the pulse. That is the finger on the pulse. That's why I can tell when somebody is pandering because uh, I know they're not being authentic. I know they're trying to say, I am who you are, instead of saying, I'm not who you are. I am who I am, but I understand. I get it. I, I've i spent enough time with you to know what your real concerns are, and I've taken a step back. I've got a, I not only have a vision of where we should go as a people, but I actually have a plan of how we can get from where we are now to where we need to be. And here are the steps in that process. And these are the things that I would do first. And here are the people who I would involve in that. Like, right, that's that for me is what I'm looking for in terms of leadership, not just the person who has the charisma and can tell me what I want to hear and tickle my itching ears, but a person who has enough of a proven track record that I know they they know some people and they can get some stuff done but also that they actually understand the American uh, people, our place right now in in human history and what we need going forward. So I'm with you. I mean, you already know that. So uh, Justin Gibney and I probably uh, lean to leave it right there. Uh, We leave lots of conversations on the table, but that just means we get to come back and talk again. Justin, uh, thank you so much. I enjoyed it, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Likewise. You guys can find him at the AND campaign. You also can find him at the Crux and the Call. We'll be right back. So there's people out there who live um, fairly public lives, and we assume we know their story. And sometimes we know the public part of their story, but we don't know 
the personal story that's behind the public story. And that's the conversation we're going to have next with Ann Beeler. You know her name as uh, Auntie Anne from Auntie Anne's Pretzels. You may have seen that part of her story on television shows like ABC's Secret Millionaire or The Oprah Winfrey Show or Good Morning America or uh, Anderson Cooper Live or even like Food Court Wars, depending uh, you know on which channel you spend your time on. She is, um, you know, one of America's most successful entrepreneurs. She is certainly uh, in a very small elite class of women who have founded national companies and, uh, and even a smaller number that have owned international franchise companies. But Ann Beeler's story is a story of faith, and it's a story of um, resilience and overcoming and grief and uh, where you find new life. And so next up, a very personal conversation with Ann Beeler of Aunt, Auntie Ann's Pretzels. We'll be right back. When every conversation with your teen about rules and boundaries turns into a battle of wills, it's easy to feel like tossing in the towel. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens are known for testing boundaries, but it's possible to handle their moans and rolling eyes in a way that maintains relationship without backing down. And one of my favorite ways to do that is with the word, nevertheless. Here's how it works. Instead of saying, no, you can't go see that movie, say, sweetheart, I'm aware your friends think it's a great movie and they may be right. Nevertheless, our rule is that we don't watch R-rated movies. So the next time you get pushback from your teen over rules or curfews, try responding with, nevertheless, you'll be amazed how one simple word can turn the tide. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Auntie Ann Byler is probably best known as the founder of Auntie Ann's Pretzels, which is the largest, uh, the world's largest pretzel franchise. Um, I happen to be a giant fan of the pretzel dog, um, but other people have their favorites as well. Um, she's with us today because there's actually more to her story. Um, Ann, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, there are there are farm families listening to us across the country right now. Um, And when I read your story, I was reminded as, you know, as a generational child of a farm family, um, Mm -hmm. there are things that happen on farms that don't happen in other places. And part of your story is is related to being a farm family. And I think that's 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 one thing that I I want to highlight for our audience as they're listening to us this morning. Um, but I I want to maybe just start the conversation this way. And first of all, friends, we are talking about um, Anne's book, which is The Secret Lies Within, an inside outlook at overcoming trauma and finding purpose in the pain. Um, and it is about to be released. And so we're really excited to be having this conversation uh, today with you about it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. If I, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I know that I can say a date in time to you, and I happen to know that, like, on that date sort of swings the hinge of your story. Um, and so tell us what that day is. And then what I, what I think I'd like for you to do is just tell people the story, you know, sort of like life prior to that day, September the mm-hmm. 8th, 1975, and then, um, and then life after. 
Okay. Uh, well, I grew up in, on an Amish farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. There's eight of us kids, mom and dad. Um, they're, they taught us to love God. They taught us to work hard. They taught us to love each other. And I believe that my theology going into my adult years was typical of most um, of that community, Amish, Amish Mennonite community, in that life is good and God is harsh. If you do everything just right, then God will bless you. And if you don't, he may be upset with you. And I know that sounds silly, but it was very black and white. The community was uh, very black and white as far as the rules and regulations. And it's uh, uh, anytime there was a tragedy or any accident, it was always, you know, used. Um, they would say things like, you know, it's God's will. God will help you through. God can never give you anything bigger than you can bear. So my theology was was faulty at best. <laughs> it was faulty. And uh, what I know today, uh, Carmen, is that um, almost seven decades later now, in real life's experiences, I know that life is hard and God is good. And mm-hmm. I don't confuse the two anymore. So going into my marriage at a, as a young girl, 19 years old is the typical age to get married when you're Amish. And um, I was full of joy, full of life. My only dream was to have my family, and my husband and I were happily married for about seven years, and we had two daughters. And still this idea that God is so good, and we had experienced a great spiritual awakening in our hearts, and we were in a tight relationship with Jesus and each other and our church, and it couldn't have been better. And I was ready to win the world for Jesus. So uh, September the 8th uh, changed all of that for me. And Angie was walking up to my mom's house, which was we were on the same property a few hundred feet from each other. And she did that every morning. And my sister was driving a bobcat, working for my dad, loading and unloading sand for his stone business. And at one point, my sister uh, backed up and for another scoop of sand. And when she did, she saw Angie laying in front of her. And Angie was already gone. She was killed instantly mm. that morning. My my world changed, obviously. And Trauma changes us. I didn't know that at that time, but wow, it changed me. And what I lost that morning was not only my sweet Angela Joy, who was 19 months old, but I lost my sister, who we were best friends, and she loved Angie with all of her heart. She was going to be in her wedding six weeks later. And as time went on, I I lost my best friend, my husband, Jonas. This this wall, this this uh, great wall of business, it may as well have been the Great Wall of China, was between my husband and I, and my sister Fi and I. She was in such trauma. Uh, we tried to kind of pick ourselves up and uh, live life as normal because, remember, everything happens for a reason, and God will never give us more than we can bear, so we're trying to be strong. And I am trying to be strong, and I'm trying to pretend everything is okay because I want it to be strong for Fi my sister. And so in a nutshell, as Angie made her um, ascent into heaven to to live with Jesus forever, in a split second, she found herself in the arms of Jesus. I began my slow and um, gradual descent into a life of um, spiritual confusion and emotional pain. And, and Anne, um, I think there's no more honest a way to describe that. Um, I, um, as I hear you tell your story and as 
Um, and as I read the the excerpts from The Secret Lies Within, which is Anne Byler's new book, it is uh, it's forthcoming. People can get it uh, really soon. You could pre-order it now. The Secret Lies Within, an inside outlook at overcoming trauma and finding purpose in the pain. Um, and there's no question that it is it is so honest to the experience of grief um, mm-hmm. walked by a person of faith. Like mm-hmm. it is, um, I have walked this path with family members and with friends. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you are, you have given us a gift by articulating your own story. And so I, I certainly want to, uh, want to affirm that. The, the trauma you. of your experience was not just located in, um, in the loss of Angie. It was no. complicated mm-hmm. and um, layered, uh, more layers placed upon it by abuse that you experienced when you sought counsel. Yes. Yes. So the grief that I was experiencing, Carmen, was more than I could um, express. And if you, uh, as you read my book, you understand that in our home, we had lots of fun. We worked hard. Uh, we sat around the dinner table every single night for all of my, all of my years, had lots of fun. We've talked about everything, but we were never allowed to be, when I say allowed to be, it was never acceptable behavior to be angry and upset. And so we were pretty much taught to just kind of deal with it, get over it. Uh, don't talk about it or you shouldn't feel that way. And so when I was, when I experienced this deep grief, um, I, I had no tools. I didn't. I, I didn't know what to do except uh, to pray about it. Um, to uh, I cried about it for months, but I cried silently. I never would let anyone see me cry because we were also taught in the current church, which we were now in a charismatic, uh, non-denominational church, and it was uh, uh, the, the the message was always we are more than a conqueror through Christ, and uh, we. Uh, we can be victorious no matter what comes our way. And I was beginning to feel bad for feeling bad. And I began to feel guilty because I'm not an overcoming Christian. My grief was consuming me. And so um, I went to my pastor for help about five months after she was killed. And um, before I left his office, he um, took advantage of me. And in the church, we, we did lots of hugging and it was okay. It was all appropriate. But uh, when I left that morning, he took advantage of me emotionally and uh, physically. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know about abuse of spiritual power. Certainly didn't know about sexual abuse. Um, left his office devastated in one sense. The other side of me was like, wow, he really cares for me. I could talk to him. And that became my journey. It took me into six years of uh, spiritual, physical, sexual abuse of every kind. And I didn't say a word to anyone. I lived this horror, this darkness, this despair, this guilt, pain, blame, and shame uh, silently for six years. First of all, I want to... I want to echo what everyone is thinking right now, which is just to say, I'm so sorry. And I know that um, I know that does not resolve anything, but um, you Thank are you. speaking to you're speaking to people's hearts and their experience, and you're willing to tell your story, and that 
that liberates other people to tell theirs. So when we return, we got to take a quick break. When we return, more of Ann Byler's story, because it is a story of redemption and hope and real life. We'll be right back. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if it's a- Returning to my conversation with Ann Byler, you can find her at AuntieAnnByler.com. Her new book, The Secret Lies Within, an inside outlook at overcoming trauma and finding purpose in the pain. Um, it is uh, it, it is a provocative read. It is an excellent read. And it is a hope-filled, uh, redemptive read. And so, Ann, let's continue the conversation because at some point, God God begins to speak. Yes. Um, so living in this very, very dark place, um, wondering how did I get there, wondering why this happened. Uh, beginning, my anger became, uh, of course, a silent anger. I never threw pots and pans or even yelled at anyone or expressed anger in any way. But it, inside of me, it was it was full-blown. Dr. Richard Dobbins says, alone we die, connected we live. So I began to live in this isolation feeling alone all the time and believing the lies that were very clearly, uh, I, I truly believed everything that Satan was telling me. I mean, we believe lies. We don't realize they're coming from him. Understand. Uh, but I truly believed that I was unlovable. I was unforgivable and I was certainly unchangeable. I believed the lie that if I told my husband that what was going on in my life, that he would divorce me. I was sure as I, I knew that, and I, I counted the cost, like what would I do? Uh, after a few years, I knew that pastor was only using me. There was no future for us. Uh, it sounds silly now, but, um, you know, I didn't know then that he was also seeing my sisters at the same time and also abusing my youngest daughter, who at the time was from three years old to eight or nine. I didn't know that he was abusing her either. So this man was a manipul- master manipulator. And I was sinking into this dark place where I felt like I was holding on to the, the cliff with my, with my raw fingers. I just knew any minute I was going to fall into an abyss of darkness that I would never be able to come out again. So I was dying and nobody noticed. And the lies that we believe in our pain, the, the only way that we can actually begin to see that we're believing the lies is by bringing all of our deeds into the light. The Bible says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin if we walk in the light. I didn't realize that at that time. I didn't realize that my, I knew I was experiencing lots of darkness. I knew that Jesus was my savior. I cried out to him every single day, asked him to forgive me. And he did, because the Bible says that he will. And so spiritually, I stayed connected with God. During this time, I also discovered there were three types of confession. It's what I call the bedside confession. And then we have the journaling confession. We write down our feelings and our thoughts. And then there is the one-to-another confession, which is found in James five sixteen. If we confess our faults and our sins, our struggles, our thoughts, our problems, one-to-another, that's the key, and pray for one another, then we will be healed. And I'm making this really quick, Carmen, but at one point, 
God spoke to me and said, get up off your knees and go tell your husband what your life is all about right now. Mm. Um, uh, we'll do just about anything except that. <laughs> you know, what right. we do today to numb our pain is we go, we sex it away, we alcohol it away, we work it away, we drug it away, we minister, we even do, we get busy to drown our pain, hoping that someday God will deliver me or help me through this. And I have to say, God, help me through it. But let me tell you, the hard work that I had to do was I had to get up off my knees. I had to do the hard confession and tell my husband. That was the very beginning, just, just, a, just a spark, just a teeny tiny step into the light. But I did the James 5:16 model, confess your faults, your sins, one to another. It's what I did. And that began a whole lifestyle for me that took me years, Carmen, to get to where I am today. But that was the beginning. When we continue to live in secrets and hide them and hope that no one ever finds out, we will never experience true freedom. And we will certainly never be able to come out of this defeated place of, of pain, blame, and shame. I'd love to tell you the story about my husband's response, but I know that we are limited. We're married 51 years coming up in one month, and I am, we are redeemed. It's the work of redemption. And out of that one single confession, God blessed us in such a way. And Auntie Anne's was a part of our redemption story. And I, I just love that you share it all so candidly in this book, The Secret Lies Within, An Inside Outlook at Overcoming Trauma and Finding Purpose in the Pain. The author is Ann Byler, B-I-E-L-E-R. You can find her um, online. You can find her uh, on uh, Facebook and Instagram as well. This is a story of redemption and hope. Uh, Anne also has a speaking ministry. She founded Broken Silence in 2018, which is, has the mission of teaching and equipping women about living a lifestyle of confession, uh, her own experience. She and her husband, as she just uh, testified to, have this beautifully reconciled, restored marriage that also speaks redemptive hope. Uh, on that topic to the culture that's in such desperate need um, of that kind of healing as well. So, Anne, thank you so much for who you are and for your courage in sharing your story, because that's the real that's the real power here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carmen. Friends, we'll be right back. So, um, I don't I don't really quite know how to sum this up other than to say, you know, Ann Byler might be a person who from outward appearances as one of, you know, like Fortune 500's crazy wealthiest women, like, right? I mean, like from outward appearances, you may say to yourself, wow, um, like I only knew the outward things about her. And and so, like, if you were just to, like, Google her net worth, like, she's a person who's just way up there in terms of net worth, in terms of the financial assessment of the world. But her net worth in, in, in Jesus, like, the way she casts the net for Jesus Christ today through this ministry is extraordinary. And so let's be focused today on that kind of net worth and not the other. Thanks for being with me. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.